quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. Hello, you're listening to the podcast, So There I Was, which is how all great aviation stories begin. Episode 77, Fire, Coming Out the Go End. That's <laughs> <laughs> a good story. It's a good story. It is. We get into it fast. Sponsor this week is Robin's Bird Brain Designs at robinsbirdbraindesigns.com. Laser etch custom gifts. We'll talk more about that during the show. Hey, we quickly this week get into what happened to him to get to this week's title. Yeah, <laughs> that that was, was funny. A, Another, it was funny in a terrifying way. Yeah, right? <laughs> you, know, but, you know. Ouch. Yes. <laughs> uh, yes. Hey, you know, if the book says you can't do it, you got to try it, right? I mean, isn't that well, how it works? Well, yeah, especially when the book only had six pages. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or six warnings or six cautions or whatever it Something was. Oh, like my that. God. Yeah. It, it yeah, wasn't much. It was it was waffle thin, that book. <laughs> yeah. These so, guys were hey, definitely we, on the leading edge. Indeed. And the bleeding edge, as it were. So we opened this week mid-interview because, as you may recall, last week we had the first half of the interview with Sugar. And we opened this week talking about the introduction of the AV-8A into the U.S. Arsenal. Into the U.S. Arsenal, yeah. And yes, uh, how its mission would be fulfilled and his role in helping to prove that concept. You know, he's he's very humble and he doesn't really come out and say it, but he was definitely the right man at the right time with the right prior experience to make that program work and to show how it how it work right absolutely and he rightfully says you know i I was part of the team that did it i I didn't do it but he he realizes that his experience he he flew helicopters both in the marine corps he did an exchange tour with the brits so his time on helicopter carriers and working with other aircraft gave him the vision and the experience to understand how best to employ this new airplane with a new mission within the U.S. arsenal. So that's that's pretty cool. And then a couple funny stories. I think he talked last week about the the lighter incident with the president. And then, yeah, yeah. And this week, yeah, <laughs> he has a good story about how how he got leave, how he got thirty days of leave before starting AWS Amphibious Warfare School. <laughs> yeah, Marines don't get that when they report to Quantico. But he did. Yep. He did. <laughs> he, he, he got a spot of leave. He got a spot of leave. That's right. Yeah. And hey, he's got books. He's got five books out there. And they're all amazing. And I and I, we, we've read them. We've read them all. And if you like flying stories, especially a Marine flying stories and how a Marine got to where he was, you're right with him. It's, it's awesome reads. Right from being an enlisted man who had to go to the police station to prove he wasn't a wanted man to get <laughs> to get in as quickly as he could to to finishing as a squadron commander and getting to do all those neat things in the interim. Uh, it's a fabulous series. Sea stories of a U.S. Marine. Let's get out of the way and listen to Sugar tell his story. Let's go. Don't sit on the ejection handle. Here comes Sugar. Do it. Through the weather. Oh, and to the uh, tanker crew who uh, did that. Thanks a lot. We really appreciated that. I'm just kidding. No, I'm not. Well, there I was, crossing the pond, and you could see that I wasn't exactly fun. You were a grunt, got yanked out of, you literally yanked out of a ditch. Sent, sent off to OCS and then to flight school and got to fly helicopters, but with the Brits. So that exposure, flying on and off of helicopter carriers and then doing it in Vietnam, got you to some experience that I think was instrumental. Uh, so if we, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what it is that you found yourself doing with the what. What was the Marine Corps trying to do with the Harrier, and what were you tasked with doing with the Harrier? And I think we'll come to see pretty quickly, you were one of the few people uniquely positioned to help prove that. No, you were supposed to be there doing that. That's the way I take it. Yeah, ex- absolutely. I mean, you were the guy. <laughs> so a lot of questions the in there. If we could get your perspective on the early days of the Harrier and how, how you saw it and how you said before you knew it, you were saying, yes, you wanted That's to fly. That's true. I, based on my contemporaries, and there were only a couple of guys that probably had the same outlook that I did. 
But because I was ex-enlisted, because I'd been in on the ground, I knew how critical close air support was and that it was the glue that held the air ground team together. And when we went in Vietnam, we had the A-4 and we had a what they called a SATS field. You guys know what I'm talking about, a short airfield yeah. for tactical whatever made out of Mars and Matic. And it was portable to a degree, but not portable where you could put it down one day and pick it up and move it the next. So they put that in, in in July, which was about 60 or so miles south of Da Nang. And the bulk of the Marine fighting, 3rd Division, was up in what they called Leatherneck Square, which was right against the North Vietnamese border and the DMZ. Quezon, Contien, the Rock Pile, Razorback, all those places were right up there within uh, gun range of the North Vietnamese. So most of the close air support work for the Marines had to be there. And the guys were taken off in Chulai, which was 60 miles below Da Nang. And it was about another 60 miles or so up to the border north of Da Nang. So the response time for somebody on a five-minute close air support alert, he's going to have to fly about 90 miles with his ordinance on once he got the call and get on station and get briefed and then drop the order. The time started stretching out. It, 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 it was 30 minutes or better and so on and so forth. So if you had ever been laying on the ground with your ribs trying to dig in a little deeper, needing close air support, and 30 minutes is as soon as the guy could get there. It's an uh, eternity. Well, it was a lifetime. And for, in many cases, it was a lifetime for a lot of guys. Yeah. So, so right. yeah. the grunts quite logically started saying, what the hell good are you? God damn it, we call you, you can't get there. You know, and so their lordships decided we better figure out a way to get there quicker. And they started looking around the world and, and, and on airplanes. And the only thing that could do that was an airplane called a Harrier. And now, now you now hold on a second. I, I know why, but I want you to explain why, why is it that be. That that that's the only airplane that could get there quicker. The Harrier had the ability to take off or land vertically or take off in a very short distance and land in a very short distance. It was called a V-stall aircraft. Very short takeoff or landing or vertical takeoff and landing. And the, Brit the British, the Royal Air Force, were the only ones that had that. And, of course, they did not employ that airplane anywhere near what the Marine Corps was going to use it. But if you took the Harrier and you stationed it close enough to the forward edge of the battlefield, the FIBA, <laughs> as they nice. would say, nice. the, the FIBA, then that airplane had the ability to get air, aircraft or airborne so fast that you're talking about a 10-minute response time or even a five-minute response time, as long as you kept it outside the fan of the artillery fan of the bad guys uh, so you didn't have to defend it because that takes more people and more everything else. And so the problem was that this country knew nothing about that. The rest of the world basically didn't know about that. The Royal Air Force used it for a deep interdiction type mission, bombing airfields and all that sort of crap. But we wanted to use it for close air support. We wanted to be able to use it off of a ship. So in their... Colonel Tom Miller and Colonel Bud Isles were at headquarters Marine Corps somewhere or another, and I think they were both test pilots. Anyway, they said, we got to have a look at this airplane. So they went to England, and and I remember Dr. Fazard and, and John Farley telling me that it was really kind of strange. These two guys just showed up at their door one day, knocked on the door, and said, uh, we're from the United States Marine Corps, and we want to fly your airplane. Got <laughs> 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 a Dunsfold at this, you know, the little airfield test facility they had. And so they had a little conversation and said, well, okay, we'll work it out. But anyway, make a long story short, these guys said, this will work. We just got to prove that it works. And and that's why we we were so ill-prepared to, to train because we needed the aircraft. I think the buy was 260-some. And there was no money in there for training, simulation, any of that sort of stuff. Just give it. 
Here's an airplane. Go, right. go and, do it. And when, and when they first started, these C-141s would come in from England, and they'd drop the ramp, and out would roll a fuselage, a tailplane, you know, an engine on a stand, and, and a wing. And you, we had a, a crew there. Parts is parts. Here's some parts. Started figure putting it out. It together. Yeah, it was kind of like a Maddie Mattel build your own war machine thing, you know. <laughs> and they would get one together and crank it up, and they say, "Oh shit, this works!" You know, it's the engine. You know, <laughs> now somebody's got to go fly it. You know, so and we had a couple of Brit exchange guys that knew how to fly it, so they would fly it, and then they, they'd come back and say, "Wait, what? It's good. Take it. You you can you can do it." You know, and they just kind of turn you loose, and that was. And but we had to prove the concept. <clears throat> we got asked to do some incredibly strange things. And and we did them. The, the fuel probe bolted on. You had to, right. if you were going to right. do a refuel, you had to bolt the probe on. But it had an airfoil on it, and what it did was it changed the character, the flight characteristics of the aircraft. So if you had 120 gallon drop tanks and some bombs on board, and maybe 240 rounds of 30 millimeter HEI, and you went up to hit, you know, say hit the tanker and come back take a run on a banner and then go drop a bomb somewhere, which was a lot of things they asked us to do all in one hop. And you came off the, came off the perch when you got the low reversal and really slammed some G's on it. So I bet you to depart because because of the drag that foil on the, on the, on the probe developed a lift factor (laughs) and you couldn't overcome it. It would just boom. It would just snap, you know, and things like that. But there were all sorts of things like that. We didn't know about, you know, yeah. And although a lot of guys in that program That's were crazy. test pilots and they were excellent pilots, even they didn't you know, realize uh, some of the things that would happen. And I remember when, when I got, got into the program, they gave me my, my NATOPS manual, which was the thinnest NATOPS manual I'd ever seen. It was about, oh, I guess maybe half an inch thick. And then the emergency pocket checklist, which you put in your G suit pocket, you know, so it had eight pages. And and on, on on page four, I think it was, you know, you know, in Natops manual, they got those hazard things, a big bold printing. It said, "Warning: yeah. Do not attempt 360 degree. You know, no, do not attempt full stick deflection aileron rolls above 360 knots." Well, you know, and the guys that we were, we said, "What the hell is that for? You know, what do they mean by that? You know, so." That's for the average guy. Very quietly, I think one by one, I I had it out at 25,000 feet one day, and I just I thought, well, that doesn't make any sense. Why can't you do that? Well, the rate of roll on an AVA day was was, three, was greater than 360 degrees for yeah. a, a football. A second. Yeah, a yeah. second. Yeah, it banged your head off the canopy. Right. So I went it's like that, an A4. I wound that beauty up to about four and a quarter and hit that stick over, and boom, I went around and two times so fast I didn't even realize what was happening. And then the nose started coming around in big arcs and then it swapped ends and I had <laughs> fire coming out the, the go in, you know, and I thought, this is not good. It's going to come pressure stall. So I shut it down and, and, and the, the OAVA was great. If you didn't mess with it, you just put everything in the middle and set still, it would be like a, you know, it would gyrate around, but eventually become a straight down like a yard dart, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and then you, you, the, the, the uh, ram air turbine came out and you, so you had hydraulic power and you could start pulling up and get a positive vector on the thing. And if everything looked good, you'd come around the horn and hit the igniters and boom, it'd take off again. And you'd fly back to the base and say, well, I, I departed a little bit. Maybe you want to do a boroscope on the engine. <laughs> but what I found out was I, the first, yeah. the first time, only time I really did that was I, I got back and, I was in the locker room changing clothes, and this one fellow, his name was Joe Gallo. He was also a former helicopter pilot. I said, hey, Joe, you know that thing in, on page four? It says don't do the, He said, oh, yeah, you did it, didn't you? And I said, well, yeah, I did. He said, well, what, what altitude were you when you tried it? I said, 25,000. He said, where'd you get it out? I said, well, about 3,000 feet. He said, and, of course, you're supposed to punch out at 10 if you're out of control. Yeah. And everybody believed it was better to be dead than look bad. Well, every during time. A, during a battle, you're out. And- that's a that's an adage of naval aviation, isn't it? 
Better well, go ahead and die than it. live and look stupid. So Joe said, well, hell, you did a lot better than I did. I said, I was below 3,000 feet when I got it out. And there was this one first lieutenant named Winnie Rohrbaugh. He, he wound up working for Eastern Airlines. He was in the John. And he yelled, oh, you guys are champions. I I almost broke 1,000 feet over to Pamlico Sam. Holy you know, shit. But, See? But they would, you know, you, the very next day, you might be tasked to go out and and land on Lyman Road at Camp Lejeune. You know, and they had. Yeah, you. It seems like you were constantly uh, being offered up to give these demonstrations, right? Oh. Performance demonstrations. Oh yeah. Capability, capex, capability exercises, right? You do constantly. You do a single plane beast all display, and I think it was a set nineteen seventy six. I think the Harrier did a display almost across this nation almost every weekend from the. First of April to the thirty first of October. Wow! I did my first air show, Deer Valley Airfield outside of Phoenix, and I did my last air show that year at Wheeling, West Virginia, on this airfield that looked like a carrier deck. It was on top of a mountain. They just leveled it off. Wow! <laughs> yeah, you did. And of course, you know, Lord help you if you made a mistake. Oh sure, because it was over. You know, but, yep. you, you know, and then people, you wanted to, to, for people to see what that airplane could do. And and I I had a, a deep burning desire to make sure that the concept was going to be proved. So every exercise we had flying out of LZ Bluebird down at uh, Camp Lejeune. Oh, Camp Lejeune. Yeah, yeah or even Lejeune. out at the Stumps, yeah. you know, we finally started out there. We were working off an 800-foot margin matting strip. Yep. Just to get the grunts to know that you could do it, you could do it. And it didn't matter if you wanted me to do it from a road or a deck of a ship or whatever, we could do it. We were going to prove the concept. And that first part where you said, uh, there I was, and I was talking about the Harrier carrier. I think that was probably the one thing that we were able to do on the national scene of, of defending this nation or, or being a weapon system for this nation was, was, was the Harrier carrier. And I don't know if you know how that came about or not, but. No, let's uh, can you, can you, yeah. yeah you can you talk about that. how that yeah, came about? You went, went on an exercise and I know the Navy was, had, had things set differently for you. Well, when you first we, got. I had the squadron and I had done an Arctic express cruise with the with the airplanes everybody wanted me to transplant i said i'm not translating these young pilots i had nine brand new guys i said they need to know how to operate off of a ship and we need to make sure that everybody knows what it's going to cost to have harriers on the ship you know you had art knowles with you yes didn't i you? did uh, chaos, <laughs> chaos is one of my boys he's spicer <laughs> yeah yeah and, uh, anyway so all of a sudden, I get this phone call from my group commander. We'd finished that cruise. We'd, be, we'd been back maybe uh, two months. And and he said, uh, how fast could you get aboard uh, an LHA with uh, your squadron and maybe one more? I said, when's the deck available? He said, I don't know. I said, I'll get back to you. So he's, you know, 20 minutes later, phone ring. He says, uh, well, I don't know about that. He said, but uh, how, uh, how much ordinance would you need? I said, what's my mission? I don't know. I'll get back to you. So this went on. <laughs> well, what had happened was the ally, the, the Navy was unable to keep two carriers, attack carriers in the mid. At the, and that was a promise we'd made to the allies that we would always keep two attack carriers in the mid. At that time, they had one in the mid and one in the IO. And so the, the allies were yelling and screaming about this. And President Reagan said, hey, I'm tired of taking crap from these guys. What are you going to do? You know, we, I need two carriers in the mid. So there was a cocktail party, supposedly. This is a story I heard. Uh, CNO, CMC, and SecDef, who was layman at the time. Yeah. We're at a yeah. cocktail party, and they were discussing this problem. And I don't know who said it, but somebody said, what if we grab a couple of those Harrier squadrons and stick them on an LHA and ran them out there? You think we could make them think that was a big deck carrier? And so that was the genesis of it. And I I got called to go up to see FMF Lant, uh, Deputy FMF Lant, which was General Vincent. And he'd been the 
he'd been the wing commander. He's the guy that put me in the chair, you know. And so anyway, he said, "Told you he'd be watching well, you closely, yeah, he right?" He was, and he had been. And anyway, he said, "You know, you did a good job on that north northern thing. You did some things that they weren't ready to see, and that's what got the interest about this." So anyway, he. Myself, Colonel Williams, and Colonel Palmer were uh, Colonel Palmer was a group commander, and Colonel Williams was the other squadron commander. And we were standing there in front of General Vincent up in uh, Norfolk. And he so he said, This is what we're thinking about doing. And then after he explained that, he told him, he said, You guys can leave. And <laughs> I thought, Oh boy, here we go again, you know. Yeah. Right. Well, he said, he told me, he said, you just, you've got a lot of shipboard experience. He said, I know you've served a lot as an Admiral's orderly and so on and so forth. You got a lot of helicopter landings on the ship. He said, we've got to make this thing look like a big deck carrier. We got to do stuff nobody's ever seen before. And I said, well, what's my mission? What's my, what are my rules? He said, your rules are you have no rules. You just make it work. And wow. so I said, wow. okay. And we had done some different things on the, in the first cruise. We were on the Iwo Jima going over, well, actually on the Saipan going over, mixing it up with the helicopters in the same pattern. They didn't want to do that, but we, we convinced them it could be done. And then we crossed deck to the Iwo and came back and we did some different things there. But when we got ready to go aboard the, the Nassau, the Navy had brought a whole bunch of people over flight deck personnel from big decks. And, you know, big decks, you land, they taxi you forward, then they break the deck and they drag you all back and they get all this crap. And so when we first landed on the ship, I immediately dropped my flight gear and I went right up to the captain and I said, and we had all these Harriers parked forward. I said, sir, we can't do this. You know, I'll just tell you right now. We cannot do this. We have a system. I have a system. Myself and Major Anderson will show you how we will show, we will demonstrate the inherent mobility of this aircraft to never have an aircraft shut down on the bad side of the foul, foul deck line. We will be able to launch or recover an aircraft 24-7. And I said, I just need your cooperation with this. And that's my, my job is to make this work. And so he said, okay. And we had a meeting with the air boss and the handler and everything. We got down in flight deck control and we used that little table with all the models and we showed them, okay, this way, this way, this way. And this is the way everybody taxis. If you, the aircraft, when it leaves its taxi position out to launch, it comes back, it recovers. It will continue to move until it gets to a spot that you want to attack, park it. And we will even back the airplanes into parking places. Well, this just blew their mind because they're used to doing one thing at a time. You drag a helo out, you spread the blades, you know, you crank the helo up and it launches and uh, it comes back. You shut it down on the spot. You fold the blade, you drag it over, you put it in the bone. And here we had no helos. We had, well, we did have a SAR, two SAR 46s, but we had, I think it was 16 or 18 Harriers out there. And we had a forward bone and aft bone and we, we could launch four airplanes in less than a hundred seconds. And we could recover those, those four airplanes yeah. in under two minutes from the time the first one hit the brake. And we would land at spot two, four, two, four, five, six, and seven. As soon as you landed, you started taxiing. And if you were going to be parked in the aft bone, you went up and you went a whole circle around the flight deck. And you might be taxiing aft as one of your buddies is coming in to land on a spot, but, but you could do it. And, and that's, that's how we made it work. And six fleet just couldn't believe that we could do that. I remember Admiral Kidd came down, they gave us a bunch of tests and we passed all the tests and we proved our usefulness because what we could do was we could go in and in case and down in Lebanon was a good example. They had so many factions fighting in Lebanon. They didn't know who was on wh whose team. Right. They were thinking about evacuating all the Americans out of there. Well, we had a boats because it was an LHA, but we and well deck and everything. We didn't have any marine amphibious capability except those boats. So the boats could go in and load the people, and we could protect the ship and the boats with the Harrier. But we could get airborne so quickly we didn't need to have an airborne presence. If they used the big deck carrier then those guys would have to be overhead while that was going on all the time. 
which was an overt presence, and they didn't want an overt presence. But we could launch, we wound up, we could launch 12 airplanes and just nothing flat. And so we could protect against fast patrol boats. We could protect against air to air. It was a lot of things. And they, they liked us so well, they kept us out there 103 consecutive days operating. Every, every time they had some <laughs> new idea. Of, of course they did. Every time yeah. they, the Navy, we were out there so long, the Navy gave us beer twice, you know. <laughs> but every time. 45 days, every, you get two every beers. Every time they came up with a different <laughs> idea to be able to use the Harrier, we were there. And they tasked us, and, and the deployment was open-ended. You know, and finally, the Navy, the captain of the ship said, hey, look, I, I got to get these guys, you know, not us. He didn't care about us. It was his sailors. Yeah. I got to get my, 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 my seaman back yeah. into a port somewhere for crying well, out that was More proof, Colonel, that no good well, deed right. goes unpunished. <laughs> and we, we, we had a war with a big deck carrier and watered their eyes a little bit with our air defense capability. And so it was everything we got to do there. We'd been working and working and working to prove the concept. And here we had this center stage performance and we, we managed to pull, pull it off. And I think that's what really solidified the let's go with the B. Let's really, let's get some more stuff in it, you know, like radars and all this other stuff. But, uh, but it was right. But that's why I think you were the guy. Your time on a helicopter carrier led you to understand what it is you need to do in order to be able to do that. How many guys would have shown up that didn't have your experience said, we're parking your airplanes forward. And then it would have well, been just a, a total third tornado trying to get launched I and recovered. Think, I, think you're, and, I think you're right. I don't like to take full credit for that, but I do think I was the right guy at the right time oh, yeah. in, in the right place. And I had about three or four guys that were my, my fellows in the squadron. Joe Anderson was one. Billy D. McMillan was another, but, and they were all sort of my guys, but we all, they all agreed with everything I said. So we, we made it work. We made it work. And I, I, I remember that the, the Navy just couldn't believe some of the things that we could do, particularly when we started backing into parking places. When I told, when I told the flight tech, the, the air boss and, and the air bear down there, you guys are never you're going to, you know, blue shirts are going to think they're on permanent R&R because they're not going to have to push airplanes <laughs> and all that other crap. We're going to, you know, they're all going to take the chains off when we get ready to go and put them on when we get back. But there'll be none of this pushing airplanes forward and back and all that kind of stuff. That's and it awesome. worked. And I don't, I hope, I hope there was at least some form of corporate memory and that we didn't continually reinvent the wheel, but, but and I think it, that it did happen because they used a Harrier carrier in the Gulf War as yeah. a feint. Yeah, they brought them up there and they froze a bunch of of forces because they thought that they were coming in and so on and so forth. So, but but that you know who was on you know who was on that Harrier carrier? You guys. Ben Hancock. Ben can't. Ben <laughs> no, we were yeah. repeat and I watched I mean, the whole damn goal. We were CNN we were Warriors. The whole thing from this from VMA two twenty three ready room. Oh, because okay. we we didn't deploy. Okay. Yeah, we were the only gun squad in the Marine Corps. I think, I'll be didn't go. Oh, yeah, yeah, but look at us now. Yeah. We got a podcast. But we were ready to go. <laughs> we were all signed. We had orders. We were getting stuff ready to go. And the, damn if the war didn't end yeah, in four days. It took the like six war days. ended in four days. Oh, that like, sons yeah, of bitches. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't stretch it out for us. Yeah, Let us get in a little fun. bit, you know? Yeah. Well, but wow. Yeah. I, well, I remember uh, we lost one of the greatest racquetball players I ever saw in my life, Manny Fernandez. You him? He was he was one of the Harriers that we lost over there. Oh, you mean oh Manny uh, Rivera. Rivera? Manny Rivera, Rivera. Yeah. knew it. Yeah. Knew it. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. No, he was I, good. I, I, Paul. I, now you may, I now had the privilege to play with him, and he was amazing. <laughs> he really was. Yep. They. I think they. He used to go all the time to Tinker on his cross countries. He'd always stop in at Tinker, get a Tinker burger, and refuel. He went there so often they actually put a plaque oh, really? on his memory at the Tinker Club. Yes, uh, sir. Well, I know the A six guys so. there at Cherry Point. They had a the Tinker for lunch bunch when the weather was really bad at Cherry Point. They couldn't work any targets or anything. So. 
Here at So There I Was, we're proud to welcome back as a sponsor, Robin's Bird Brain Designs. Looking for a unique and thoughtful gift? Well, look no further. At robinsbirdbraindesigns.com, they specialize in custom slate coasters that are sure to impress. Imagine having a set of coasters personalized with your squadron logo and call sign, or even your aircraft tail number and instruments. Whether it's for your aviation enthusiast friends or a special someone in your life, their custom coasters are the perfect way to show that you've put some thought into getting that something special for someone truly special. But it doesn't stop there. They can also create coasters with any organization logo and printing that you desire. From military units or sports teams, they've got you covered. Their high-quality coasters are made from durable slate, ensuring they'll stand the test of time. So why settle for ordinary gifts when you can give something extraordinary? Visit robinsbirdbraindesigns.com today and let them help you create custom gifts that show just how much you care. Because when it comes to thoughtful presence, they've got your back. I think we discussed this at some point, repeat, but Marsden matting, we all know what that is, but can you describe Marsden oh, yeah, matting yeah. to the non uh, sure. Annoyed. Martin, Martin Manning was panels of aluminum uh, that had holes in them and they linked together. They had a lock like this and you could like Maddie Mattel toy system. You could link slabs of Martin Manning and they were a various, I don't remember if they had a standard length, but the width was about uh, one and a half to two feet. And that's what you could lay down and make a helicopter pad or you can make a runway. And, with helicopters, I worked off of just pads sometimes. The airfield at Marble Mountain was Mar- Marsden Matting, and part of the airfield at Quezon and uh, Dong Ha were, was Marsden Matting. And then, then the Harriers, we used helicopter pads, and down at LZ Bluebird, they had an 800-foot Marsden Matting strip. We used to use that a lot. And some of the, the you know, helicopter pads that were located in the trees, but it was very useful because you could just, you know, with the, if you had enough uh, trucks to haul the stuff and Marines to assemble it, you could put up a pad pretty quickly. Now for the Harrier, they tried something called MOMAT. Did you guys ever run into that? No. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. MOMAT. What is yeah. it? Well, it was, it was a, some kind of composite material that came in a big roll. And they would come in and do a very cursory leveling of the of the dirt, and then they would from the combat yeah. engineer mind. <laughs> and then they would roll this moment out and stake it down. And you were supposed to be able to operate Harriers off of it. Well, the very first one they came out with, uh, they they got us. We got fragged to go down and do some landings and takeoffs. They put a cut a hole in the trees down there for a helicopter zone. And they put MOMAT down and then one of the Harriers come in and land on it. The helicopters that land on it didn't have a problem. Well, <laughs> we, we go, we go down, we do a vertical landing. We taxi off the hot spot, taxi back around, you know, and get ready to do a VTO. And I did this VTO and I remember the, they didn't call them LSOs. They call them landing site supervisors. Right. Right, right. right. Yeah, I just, and I forget who was the LSS that day, but anyway, he said, don't move, just hold what you got. And I said, <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He said, you got a MOMAT pad flying formation on you. Oh, shit. <laughs> and when I, had, when I had gone to full power and lifted, the, the mat came up with me and it just drug it up to about treetop level. <gasps> and, and so I said, what do you want me to do? He said, well, I don't know. You know, I have no idea. And so I said, well, I'm going to try nozzling out and hopefully it'll fall, you know, and it did. I just started nozzling <laughs> forward and it, whatever happened, down it came. So, so they re-rigged it. And then the next guy that come in a, a few hours later, oh, what you got? same thing happened, only not quite so bad, but one edge came up. And then as he was going up, the, the whole mat flipped over into the woods somewhere. And, they, and of course, unfortunately, they had a bunch of muhahas down there to see how it was going. And they were running for their lives, I guess. <laughs> yep. Okay. Guess this ain't going to work. <laughs> uh, but I did later on, when we did go to Norway a couple of years later, when I was a, a squadron CO, the engineers put a MOMAT uh, facility in at the end of a, a Norwegian fjord, and it worked. I don't know how what they did. But, no, no, but it worked okay. just fine. 
bigger stakes. Maybe. I, I, I never did. But I took six airplanes. We went in there and spent the night on the beach with the helicopter guys. So was it summertime or wintertime in Norway? Oh, no, it was in the fall. It was chilly, okay. but it was okay. Well, would it surprise you that we we did went to Norway above the Arctic Circle in February oh. for an exercise, and it was horrible. I I did four months up there in Bardafoss, four hundred miles north of the Arctic Circle. Okay, with, uh, with the Brits and flying Wessex Mark Fives and then Commando and then doing that sort of stuff. But it was really cold and very dark. Yeah, I was going to say it was dark all the time, but at least it was freezing yeah, cold. So. <laughs> well, it was so cold it couldn't snow, you know? So. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow. So of all the aircraft that you've ever flown, I think I know the answer to this, but I, I'm going to ask it anyway. Of all the aircraft you've ever flown in the Marine Corps, what's your favorite? Oh, the Aviate Day for sure. Uh, okay. Yeah, that was uh, that was just amazing. I put it in the book, you know. On my very first takeoff there at Cherry Point. Oh, where have you been all my life? Where have right? you been all my life? That's <laughs> yes. what I felt. And I've had a couple of, of my friends, contemporaries, that have read the Her- book four, The Harrier, and they've emailed me and said, Bill, that's exactly what I felt on my first takeoff. You know, I couldn't, you couldn't say it any right. better. Oh. Well, I, I, I could uh, yeah. reiterate the same thing. Yeah, an amazing yeah. bird. An amazing bird. Hey, one thing I, I will mention here, and I, I, I hope I'm not breaking bad news to you at this point. I, I maybe, but so you, you mentioned in your book that you were in the ready room, and I forget the name of the lieutenant colonel that walked in and asked you if you wanted to fly Harriers. And you were like, yes. And he's like, okay, I'll get you orders. And he turned around and walked out. And you said, well, I'm sitting there. And the duty officer was sitting there. It was the only other guy in the room. So Lieutenant Denny Branstetter. Oh, yeah, and, Denny uh, Branstetter. You know. Yeah. So, and so I just wanted to mention that that was one of the joys of reading the book for me was a lot of these names I recognized as they came up and Denny was one of them. I didn't fly with him in the Marine Corps, but I did fly with him at my company. I always wonder wonder what happened to him. Uh, He was a great guy. I liked Denny. uh, Uh, Sadly, we lost him a few years ago to cancer. He was was also a great baseball player. He had a little minor league experience. Yeah, I rem- I remember him well. He was, but the guy that yeah. recruited me at that time was a lieutenant colonel. His name was Jim Orr. He just passed away here not too long ago at the age of eighty-seven. So, it's a good guy. He was very. I, I don't even remember what his job was. I think he was a headquarters Marine Corps, but but he came through there and he was picking guys off and sending them to Harrier program. And I, I think a lot of people didn't, didn't realize this. When I came back from England, I went to amphibious warfare school. Right. And uh, that's one of my favorite I stories. Know. I, I like that story, too. <laughs> you get him yeah. leave. <laughs> I like that story a lot. But anyway, the, 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 the monitor was a guy named Depp Miller, D.E.P. Miller. And he, the first thing he asked me, anyway, I got this note to call him. And uh, so I called him up and he said, hey, Bill, you know, great job with the Brits, blah, blah, blah. said, have you ever thought about flying fixed wing? And I said, well, I, I just figure I'm too far down the pike as a helicopter pilot to ever get to do that, but I'd love to fly fixed wing. So he said, well, why don't you put in for fixed wing transition? And I, being an idiot, I didn't. I said, how do I do that? And he said, well, you take an AA form and submit it and the headquarters Marine Corps and the board will examine it. And he said, I'm on the board. I think your chances are good. <laughs> So I did. Perfect. I did. And about a week later, I got a call from him and said, congratulations, you've been selected for fixed wing transition. And when it came time for me to get orders to do that, the war in Vietnam, they didn't know what was going to happen. And so he came down, as they usually do, and was talking to the guys. And he said to me, he said, Bill, if, you, if I put you through now, you're going to get the bums rush transition and you're not really going to be too well prepared to get back overseas. He said, but if I'm just desperate for helicopter guys. And he said, you're a Sikorsky guy. And he said, if you'd go back to Westpac for me or Vietnam for me one more time in helicopters, I'll bring you back and give you the Cadillac transition. So I did that. But I noticed when I came out of country and came back off the ship and got back up to Okinawa where we were all piling up on the rock, 
a tremendous amount of my classmates who were A4 guys had been transitioned, forced transitioned into helicopters. Weird. When I came yeah. back and transitioned to jets and then wound up at Cherry Point, all those guys were in the Harrier program. So I think the plan was right then and there, they were gathering up A4 guys, mostly, and putting them in helicopters, give them some helicopter experience and bring them back. And they were going to use them all in the Harrier program. Okay. Just, I mean, everyone I knew, A4 pilot that I knew in, in, well, knew well, there were some that they weren't going to make it anyway, but the good guys, all the A4 good guys uh, wound up in the Harrier program that I remember from amphibious warfare school. There was the rumor, anyway, from, you know, the guys that we met when I was, you know, a lieutenant in the, in the, in my Harrier squadron, and I would meet uh, somebody that flew the A's, and I would start asking, okay, tell me about, you know, in the A's, that uh, the original A guys, you, guys like you, you, they weren't putting nuggets in the a back back in the beginning you had to have combat time in another airplane or something like that right yeah yeah no i don't i don't think i recall anybody in first squadron i I went to 231 but i wasn't in there very long but but when i got to a gun squadron where 542 was my first squadron i don't remember anybody that didn't that wasn't a combat pilot right so uh guys like art Knowles, oh, those were the first Nugget guys, yeah. right? And that's when you were the squadron commander. So that was... And I, myself and a guy named Pete Roundsville, we both wound up as squadron commanders as majors in the Harrier program, which was pretty rare. And the other thing about that was we were the first generation of Harrier pilots to bubble up to the command level. Before that, all the guys that were given command of a Harrier squadron we're not Harrier pilots. Right. They were came from another fleet. Right. Right. And, yeah, like a couple of your COs had, well, you weren't even qualified in the airplane yet. And well, one, one guy got, was a CO for about three months before he flew the airplane. <laughs> That's <laughs> great. Well, yeah. Let me go. I want to try. Yeah, really <laughs> unprecedented. I don't, right? know, I don't know what the selection process was for COs back, back in those days. Every once in a while, you see one. It was maybe he was on somebody's team and they rewarded him, you know, with sure. with command. But I, I never did know. They they were a little different. <laughs> well, every time I get to hear your stories in person, it makes the it you know for it. I feel like I know you very personally just because I've read all the books. But now, you know, I hear the stories. I'm hearing uh, you talk. For, I I never want it to stop. And I know we've been talking a long time. I just don't want it to stop. I might just have to come to your house with a bottle of, what do you like to drink? There what we go. Like <laughs> well, uh, I don't allow any scotch in my house unless it's 12 years old. And so, well, okay. The black appears on the shelves quite frequently. <laughs> I try not too much there in here go. because it doesn't have much shelf life. That's weird. Got to be got to be careful when you say like twelve yeah. year olds. No, but, no, uh, I, I have a sta- I have standards as well, and I do like Scott. I, I've been on a I've been on a Balvenie fourteen year Caribbean rum cask oh, wow. kick for quite some time, which is actually what I'm drinking right now. Oh my, oh my. Well, I'm in this. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? There you go. Well, I think I, well, I'd like him to tell. I think a good lighthearted story to get out of this. And then, and then we'll land the airplane, Fig. But uh, Colonel, would you uh, tell us about uh, how you managed to get leave before attending amphibious <laughs> warfare school when every other Marine Corps officer on the base was well, put to work, but not you? Well, <laughs> I, I had been on exchange with the Royal Marine Commandos and the Royal Navy for a little over two years. My instructions when I went there on exchange was. I had no secrets from them, and I was to give them what they wanted. And And the Brits just thought that was a great thing. So they did their best to anglicize me in dress and manner and speech. And they flew the helicopters, the Wessex Mark V, single pilot up. So when I first started flying uh, solos, I couldn't understand the tower operators or anything. And I would, I would text <laughs> 
Two countries separated That's by a right. common language. Right. I would taxi out and I'd be ready for takeoff. And I'd say, call Rose Tower. If I'm clear to take off, give me a green light. And I'd get a green light and I'd take off. <laughs> and I'd go do whatever I was supposed to do. And I'd come back and get in the landing pattern. And I'd call for landing and they'd come out, you know, set the QFE and the QNH and 10, 13 milliballs. And I had no idea what they said. And so I'd say, if I'm clear to land, give me a green light. I get a green light. So <laughs> in the process, I I had sort of had an ear for languages, I guess. But anyway, I I started developing a pretty good British accent. I just a regular, you know, Oxford type accent because I work with those guys every day. You know, you get used. To, you just have to tune your ear so you can communicate. Yes. And of course, they have so many different accents, like. Uh, well, cockneys, you know, for, you know, you know, they say, well, I think I'll step down the old transport car. I have a double A, double saucy chips and beans, a little bit of HP fruity sauce on me chips. Delightful. What do you think? You know, uh, <laughs> you, you had to, you had to assimilate, you know, all that sort of stuff. So, sure. so when I came back from England, unbeknownst to me, I had a, a pretty a good British accent. And I'd had a lot of clothing made over there because they were trying to turn me into a gentleman. And so when I checked into Quantico, I went in, I was in civilian clothes, or as the Brits would say, me mufti. And I probably needed a haircut, you know, at the same time. And I turned in my OQR and orders and everything. And this fellow said uh, something about uh, assignments, you know, and I said, just in the way I was speaking, but it probably came out in British. I said, well, yeah, I wouldn't mind a spot of leave. I haven't had to leave in several years now. And they said, oh, okay. So they filled out a set of leave papers and gave them to me. I said, thanks, mate. I was gone. You know, and I came back 30 days later and walked in to check in off leave. I'm in uniform this time. Haircut, shaved, the whole deal. Shoes, sign, brass, everything. (laughs) I look like a Marine, you know. And this major that was the S1 there of of the basic school, I I think his name was Brown. Anyway, he was a grunt. No no sense of you. Oh, no, No absolutely not. (laughs) No, they ripped that out of you at uh, IOC. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, he suddenly saw me, you know, and it was a sergeant checking me in at the desk. He said, Captain Spicer. I said, yes, sir. And he got up and came over to the counter and he said, did you enjoy your leave like that? You know, and I said, right. I had a great time, you know, and it was something I really needed. And he said, well, you know, the only reason you got that leave was we thought you were a Royal Marine. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise you would have been assigned to a job on the base. And he gave me stick the whole time I was there. I couldn't do anything to please that guy. But I guess it was just because he was embarrassed that they thought I was a Royal Marine and sent me on my way rejoicing. <laughs> That's As it was I, I, I love well that story. <laughs> I love it. Every other Marine was assigned to do a one of the SLJO, shitty oh, little, yeah. little job yeah. officers somewhere on the base. And, but you know what? You deserved it. You'd be, like you said, you'd been a couple of years. You'd been overseas. You were bringing well, your family I'd, I'd back. Left, and, uh, and, uh, I'd, I'd left the United out. States in the, uh, in January of 68, the time, you know, or a little bit before that, actually. And I was coming back now and it was a 71-ish. And I, I hadn't been anywhere near the American Marine Corps or the United States. I did a touch right. of to pick up my family and that was it in America. So I was really, I needed to get back into the system somehow or another. Hey, hey, repeat. I I have to ask him one more question because I took, I took a sure. note earlier and I realized we haven't got to it. And and I wanted to hear it. Oh, I man. wanted to hear it from uh, Sugar. So in your in your uh, fourth book, you tell a story, and I don't remember exactly what led up to you. You were on somebody's wing. You you should you were the lead, but you had some kind of failure. I don't, I don't remember if it was electrical failure, but you, you ended up at that point being drugged through a thunderstorm with hail and the whole deal, and you guys ended up. Uh, divertent somewhere, but can you recount that? Well, we, we yeah, we didn't. We were, I think you're talking about the time Rick Priest and I had been detailed off to go down to Patrick Air Force Base 
and they were holding a third. That's right. And the squad and this and the group commander said, "You guys need to come home now." Well, the general, in a hurricane, hurricane, the, right? The general ordered us home. We had we had we had done a week of air shows, and my airplane had pretty well had it. You know, I I had a, a usable UHF. I mean FM. The UHF didn't work. The, the uh, transponder didn't work. The TACAN was in off. But we'd been flying two shows a day on this on that airplane. Yeah, for for the NASA people, right? Yeah, uh, and we'd always for yes. the third century exposition. We were doing air shows out at the Cape, right in front of the VAB. Okay, um, it was it was evidently a big deal. I I, I don't know, but anyway, that's a lot of good. <laughs> and so th- there's a hurricane coming. We we had word on that, and then I called my CEO and I said we're going to finish on Sunday you know, late, and we'd like to at least have a chance to rest and come back on Monday morning. He said, yeah, okay. And I said, what about the hurricane? He said, oh, they, they're huravacking the whole wing. So see if you can work out a deal and, you know, get yourself airplanes in shelter. So I said, okay. So I went and talked to the maintenance guys, the transit alert guys at Patrick. And I said, hey, we've been with you all week. You guys have been doing a great job. You got space for two tiny little jump jets in the corner of your big hair. And they said, yeah, okay, damn Marines, you know, type thing. So they put our airplanes back in this corner, and then they piled all this other crap. And Rick and I went to bed, woke up the next morning, and went to go to breakfast. And BOQ office said, you major spider? I said, yeah. He said, you got a message. You got to call this number. So I, it was squadron CO's number, and I called it Colonel Miller was the CEO. And I said, yes, sir. He said, bring them back. And I said, what? He said, bring them back. You got to bring them back right now. I said, sir, you, you are aware that there's a hurricane between me and Cherry Point. And, and the weather here is really crap right now. You know, big boomers all around. Right. He said, I, I don't have it. I'm not in this decision. The general heard that you guys were in Cocoa Beach and he wants you back now. And wow. so I said, oh, okay. So I had to go. Their lordships yes. made the decision. <laughs> Their lordships had made a decision. And so we, I had to go to the Air Force and say, and the transit alert guy say, boys, I need my jets. And they, oh, yeah, Jesus. They, so anyway, we, we got the jets out. We got them all gassed up. And I told Rick, I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to fly wing. You just lead it. And. We took off and there was this enormous thunderstorm line coming right at us. We were right on the beach and it was coming from west to the east. And we made a section takeoff as soon as we got the gear up and started, boom, we were in it. And we were making a climbing right-hand turn to flight level 240 with the instruction. And we were in this thunderstorm. Somewhere around 16, 18,000 feet tucked in on, on the right side. And all of a sudden, Rick's airplane just goes like this, and my airplane goes like that. But something hit the wing, and it flipped me inverted, and it just kept pushing me down. And I couldn't, I couldn't get out of it. Unbelievable. I tried going to idle. I tried pulling the nose. I, anyway, just like a big giant grabbed my airplane and was just throwing it toward the earth. And uh, <laughs> I, I, uh, I managed to get the airplane upright. <laughs> And I broke out, I was in the goo, and I, I broke out at about 1,500 feet over water. Holy and shit. so I don't know if I was over a bay or if I was over the ocean or what, I couldn't, I couldn't see. And so I called Rick on the Fox mic, and he said, I'm, I'm, I'm on top at, at 27,000. I'm clear. And I said, okay, see if you can get those guys to give me a vector to you or whatever or find me, you know. So eventually he, he said, okay, do this, do this. And anyway, I started climbing up through the goo and I popped out on top and then he was off to, we, we joined up and I, I go sliding up to him to join on him and I'm looking at the airplane. Holy shit. Pardon my French. The front of the two tips of the drop tanks are gone. You know, they're gone. And I hadn't even looked at my fuel and there, there are. It looked like somebody took a great big club and beat the leading edges of, of the wings and the right. airplane and everything. And uh, the airplane just, I'm, I thought, will this thing fly? You know, and so I pull up, I said, Rick, 
your airplane looks like it's just about ready to fall apart. And he said, well, yours doesn't look any better, you know. And by that time, <laughs> fuel gauge, I had no external fuel. And so my tanks had got the front ripped off of them. And so anyway, we piddled along there. We made, I got out my whiz wheel and made a couple of calculations. I said, I, I think we make Cherry Point. You know, we're not going to be fat cats on fuel. But so we asked for, <laughs> we lied. We said, give us inertial direct. <laughs> they thought we had a navigation system. <laughs> we didn't even know what that was really, but it sounded. <laughs> and so he gave us a vector for Cherry Point. <laughs> Vector equipped. Go. And uh, <laughs> we, we got ready to let down in a cherry point. I said, hey, you know, I think we need to dirty these things up to see if they're going to fly before we get down really low, you know, in case we got to get out of these things. And he agreed. So he he told me, you know, I'll go, he, he was going to go first. I was watching him. So I'd give him plenty of room in case it departed. And he dirties up. It, it's okay. It's, it's flyable. I said, the nozzle's working. Yeah. You got duck pressure. Yeah. Everything. So I did the same thing. I said, okay. So then we go in and we thought about uh, rolling them on. And then I said, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it's, it's far safer just to do a VL, you know, just bring it to a hover. So that's what we did. We wound up landing in one after the other at the south pad, and we taxied in. Our squadron CO was in his car. He was out on the flight line. Everything was gone. There was nobody there. They'd hurravac. Yeah, they'd been hurravac. Hurravac Tennessee. We're the only two airplanes you could see. The hangars were full, probably. But anyway, we taxi in, and my CO says, "What the hell." <laughs> Well, sir, we were at this bar, and a jealous girlfriend took a baseball bat to both our jets. And, uh, <laughs> so anyway, you know, we had to write all that up and everything. And uh, yeah, uh, but uh, uh, the, the general didn't want to release that message. And no, so anyway, no. we, we went. I don't know what happened. All the, it was a couple of notches above my pay grade at that time. But those airplanes went down to the NARF, and they were in in overhaul for nine months. Yeah, it's the damage that we had run into. Yeah. Oh, but yeah. I mean, the, the thunderstorm like that almost ate two Harriers. It cracked the bulletproof glass. On Unbelievable. The panel of the aviator. Bulletproof, right. but not hailproof. That's right. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> right. But their lordships had made the decision. So, you know, what could yeah, go wrong? Um, one of the British oh, exchange officers we had was a guy named Hoof Proudfoot. He was uh, killed later on stunt flying over in England, making mm. a movie or something. But anyway, he said that was a job he wanted in England or in uh, the Pentagon. He wanted to go up and take the generals and lay them all end to end and see if they could reach a decision. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> more, more truth poetry, I think, Boy, sometimes. They call it the Puzzle yes, Palace yeah, for a reason up there. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, indeed. Well, Colonel, thank you for your service and thank you for coming back and, and spending some time with us. And and thank you for sharing these stories, both in print and, and Well, thanks for us. having me. I, it's, um, uh, it's a lot of fun. It's a yeah. lot of fun. I'll make the plug again. Go read, read the book. The book. See book. stories of a U.S. Marine. Yeah, they're there on Amazon. Read the book. They're on Audible. It's fun. just, it's, it's. Yeah, I'm going to get to meet the guy that's my voice. A fellow named Dave Bondo. I've never, yeah. we've, we've known each other for several years now because he's done the audible version of all five of those books. Yeah. And I'm taking my wife and I are going out to Yuma to the Marine Corps ball. <laughs> hey, yeah. so is, are you going to meet him this year at the Marine Corps ball? Uh, we're we're going to, I don't know. We're going to meet the Jobin. You, you know, Ed Jobin, he was a four pilot, Harrier pilot extraordinary. We, I, I, I know, I know the name. I think I met him at the. Uh, I think I met him at the at the uh, reunion in April of uh, twenty two. Okay. Repeat. I think Jobin was there. Yeah, Matter of yeah. fact, I'm pretty sure I got a picture with him. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Okay. That's right. Anyway, okay. we're going to meet right. Ed and Nancy, and then we're going to drive. We get in there on the the sixth to spend the night, and we're driving down to Yuma. And for all I don't know why they they're having the Marine Corps ball on the seventh which is a Tuesday when the, the 10th is a Saturday, you know, they could do whatever, but. Perfect day to do it and well, have a I long weekend. Kind of like the Royal Air Force. Why work Wednesdays and spoil two good weekends. <laughs> right on. <laughs> Beautiful. All right. Well, sir, if, 
you'll hang with us for just a couple minutes, Fig and I will land this airplane and we'll be able to socialize just a little bit more. Thank you for your time and your service, Colonel. We can't tell you how much we appreciate you joining us tonight. We also want to thank our listeners for tuning in. We have got some amazing listeners and the audience is growing, I think. Yeah, it's incredible. It keeps getting bigger and bigger. Just everybody sharing the sharing the show, which is good. Share the show. It's got great stories. Keep doing it. Keep doing yeah. it. You heard? Doesn't cost nothing. Yeah. How about uh, let's uh, throw out a salute to our men and women who have served and are currently serving in a recognition uh, for their family members and family members of all the veterans that have served. Absolutely. The sacrifice that these people have put up, some of them giving the ultimate sacrifice, and the family members who make it possible for them to do that, give us the freedoms we have. We're grateful for that, and we thank you for your service. We have some tech acknowledgments we need to get out there. There's a gent. What's his name? Fig? It always slips my mind. Dave the man Hamilton. Dave Hamilton. Thank you, Dave. There you go. Dave's got some other shows if you're all technically inclined, and you might want to listen to the Mac Geek Gab. I'm a co-host over there. I enjoy doing that show with him every week. Dave also has the Gig Gab for musicians and the business brain for you entrepreneurs in the audience. Some good shows. And he does those all under the auspices of a company by the name of Backbeat Media. Online at backbeatmedia.com. They handle all our advertising. If you have a show and you'd like to get advertising for it, reach out to Dave over at backbeatmedia.com. Hey, we've got a glossary. We try to uh, define all the acronyms that we and some of our guests use if we... We only threw out a couple tonight, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know. Yeah, Marsden, Manning, <laughs> well, well, uh, Cam, I don't know if there were several. However, Ciscon. if you can't find it in the glossary, shoot us an email at so there I was dot us and uh, either to figs at so there I was dot us, repeat at so there I was dot us, or sticks. Listen, really, sticks is the brains of the operation. Sticks at so there I was dot us, and we'll get that in the glossary for you. So there's no question about that. Absolutely. And if you get a chance to watch us when we're recording in real time, Styx is usually putting those up in the show notes or in the in the chat on YouTube and Rumble and Facebook where we stream live when we do this. So, hey, Fig, word was you were uh, wearing your bikini bottom on the beaches of Italy. I, I was trying to fit in with the European style of men's bathing suits and... Uh, uh, I think I pulled it off. They were trying to get close to me and read what it said, because it says, so there I was, right on the bikini bottom. But yes, uh, we have a merch store. Uh, so there I was, dot US slash merch. And you too can have a, so there I was, bikini, towel, yeah. coffee mug, shirt, hat. What I mean, what is it? It's almost limitless. Yeah. Yeah, I still need to work on the hoodie. I haven't gotten a hoodie up in there yet, but polo shirts of many colors, all kinds of good stuff. Great merch. Have some fun. Great gift for the uh, for the bikini. For the bikini, I'm reading the word bikini. As We're I said almost it. out Great of bikini gift. season now, so maybe we should really focus <laughs> on the hoodie. <laughs> right, exactly. You got Christmas season coming up, and the other holidays, which is gift giving time. So read, look out there for some fun ones, even a deck of playing cards or something like yeah, that. Yeah, so Have there some I was uh, beanie, stocking cap. I don't, we don't. I don't know. We don't. Maybe we should look we into that. Look into that. Bald guys. I don't need, know if that's available. Bald there, guys. We need hats, ask. man. Right on. Absolutely. And not just bald guys, bald women too. Ouch. <laughs> hey, we need to show, uh, throw out a, a big thank you and uh, appreciation to all of our Patreon pilots. Absolutely. They make this show possible. Between them and the advertisers, you're keeping us afloat. We couldn't do this without the financial support that you are providing us. That money isn't just tossed into your pocket. You work hard for it, and you choose to share it with us. That's a big it deal. A big We're deal. humbled by that. Thank you. Thank you, because now Repeat doesn't have to pay for everything and tell me how much I owe him. This is kind of nice. We're almost breaking even now. <laughs> <laughs> right on. We're, We're getting, getting there, baby. So your continued support is so much appreciated. Thank you. Hey, um, here's the other thing you can do to support us. If you don't want to throw money our way or can't throw money our way, that that's okay. Uh, but what you can do is share 
the show with others. Show. Let them know about it. Because the more numbers we have, the more advertisers want to get on with us so they can put their products in front of your eyes. And part of that is if you would at least go and look at the products that we hawk these during these shows. And we wouldn't put that up there if it wasn't something that we didn't use ourselves and, and didn't think it was a good product. So uh, give it a look-see. And just go in there and give it a look-see. Tells them that you're listening and you're interested. And that helps us a lot. What else can they do to engage? You can give us a five-star rating, repeat. Oh, yeah. Five-star rating. Not four. Not four. Five. Not three. If you got a one-star rating, go find another show and give that yeah, to give them. give it to somebody else. Not us. Right? Don't give it to us. So far, let's keep our our record is perfect so far. So we've got five all five-star reviews. And, man, is that awesome and humbling. So yeah. we read a couple a few weeks back. Uh, we'll probably read some more coming up. But yeah, thank you. Thank you. It is very humbling. Yeah. Yeah. A couple other last-minute thank yous. Because it's last doesn't mean it's least. Hey, Chase Cole, you were on our Facebook page over there, our Facebook group, I should say. If you're not on the Facebook group, come do it. We have pictures up there of uh, people who show us where they're listening to the show. Last week had one in front of Buckingham Palace. Ain't that oh, awesome? Way cool. Yeah. So Chase Cole is running that group at uh, facebook.com slash so there I was dot us. Thank you, Chase. Join our group over there. Yeah, indeed. Thank you. Um, Brad Silcott over at bdsaviationphotography.com. Amazing shots. And sometimes, uh, well, they're the background of our website. Uh, if you see a, the images there, those are from, uh, from Brad Silcott, and he graciously lets us use those. So thank you. Then there's uh, some musicians out there. Hey, before we get to those two guys, let's uh, say thank you to our our, our fellow. Uh, so there I was in the background, aviator, aviator extraordinaire, helicopter, death-defying pilot, Sticks, who takes care of a <laughs> lot of the logistics in our production. So thank you, Sticks. He does indeed. Indeed. Thank you, Sticks. You, uh, you're a big help, and we are grateful for it, including stepping in when... When Fig had to go away, and I may I may take advantage of that myself. Let you, let you two knuckleheads try and bang one of these I out. Think, I think you should. <laughs> and speaking of knuckleheads, uh, well, the two guys that make the Air Force sound good are playing in the background. They're yeah, and they're not they're knuckleheads. Not knuckleheads. They, they make the knuckleheads sound they good. They are the dos gringos, <laughs> and their music is fantastic. Thank you, gentlemen, for letting us use your music. Indeed. Thanks so much. Great music. Go listen to the Dos Gringos anywhere you find fine music. Amazon Music, Spotify, Pandora. It's all out there. Apple Music. The Dos Gringos. Four albums. Fun, clever music. And uh, I guess that about wraps it up, Fig. Until next week, do you have any uh, advice for our listeners? Well, stay safe and check six. Crossing the pond And you could see that I wasn't exactly fond Of all the shit I was wearing On that day Now an F-16 is cramped enough But it's even worse With all that stuff Supposed to save your life But we knew there was no way Cause when you're going down The North Atlantic, man, it's over Hold on, what did he say? He said it's over I just want to tell you both, good luck. We're all counting on you. <laughs> See ya. See ya.